Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Having been an early guest on this podcast back in 2017 when her book, The Good Girl Strep Bear, was released, I'm excited to welcome back Tracy Spicer. For anyone wanting a recap, Tracy is a multi-Walkley award-winning author, journalist and broadcaster who has anchored national programs for ABC, TV and radio, Network 10 and Sky News. The inaugural national convener of women in media, Tracy is one of the most sought-after keynote speakers and MCs in Australia. In 2019, she was named the New South Wales Premier's Woman of the Year, except the Sydney Peace Prize alongside Tarana Burke for the Me Too movement and won the National Award for Excellence in Women's Leadership through Women and Leadership Australia. The ABC highlighted Tracy's Me Too work in a three-part documentary series, Silent No More, which featured the stories of hidden survivors. In 2018, Tracy was chosen as one of Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence, winning the social enterprise and not-for-profit category. For 30 years, her work in media and charity, Tracy has also been awarded the Order of Australia. Highlights of her career, which must be many, include writing, producing and presenting documentaries on women and girls in Bangladesh, Kenya, Uganda, PNG in India, and she's an ambassador for ActionAid, the Ethnic Business Awards and Purple Our World and patron of the Pancreatic Cancer Alliance. Her newest book, Man Made, How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future, was released in May this year. And today we're discussing the world of AI and its biases. And I warmly welcome back to the politics of everything, Tracy. And of course, before we kick off, just a short note that this episode does touch on issues such as coercive control and listener discretion is advised. Hi, Tracy. Amber, thank you for that lovely introduction. And it's such an honour to be on your podcast again. I love your work. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Thank you so much. This book really struck a chord with me. I'm I'm really want to go back to, I guess, that seed of an idea that you must have had a number of years ago about how you decided that this book, Man Made, was going to be the one you had to write. My understanding is it took a little while to put together. Is that correct? 
It did. Seven years ago, my then 11-year-old son turned around and said, Mum, I want a robot slave. I said, darling, what on earth are you talking about? Anyway, he'd been watching South Park, that very naughty adult cartoon. We are obviously terrible parents with no boundaries on our children. And (laughs) very naughty boy, Cartman, was ordering around his Amazon Alexa like he was some kind of colonial overlord. It really was a light bulb moment, that conversation with my son, because as a lifelong feminist and journalist, I suddenly realised that this idea about women and girls being the ones who are servile in the home is being built into these chatbots that are running our futures. Because if you've ever listened to the chatbots in the business and finance sector, they are all male voiced because there's still this idea in society in 2023 that men are the ones who are authoritative and have credibility and gravitas and women are the ones who go out and fetch the tea and scones. So that was why I went right down the rabbit hole over the past seven years writing this book. Amazing. So I guess the world of AI is something a lot of us have become very familiar with. It's part of our everyday existence. But how has AI and this new era of feminism become intertwined from your perspective? I think this is kind of the hook for me that I went, wow, I've not seen that discussed before. Yeah, there has been a lot of discussion around sentience of AI when they're going to become more human-like. There's discussion around the end of humanity, when will artificial intelligence mean the end of the universe, you know, the existential threat. And it certainly is up there with climate change and solar flares and all the big scary stuff. But to my mind, the biggest danger is the bias. Because when you've got all types of bias, racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, homophobia, the whole box and dice embedded into these technologies, We will see a widening of the gap between rich and poor. We'll see marginalised communities become even more marginalised. And when you have that throughout history, that leads to more social dislocation. We're seeing that already with the siloing of opinions, which is due to technology forcing us down our own rabbit holes of interests and ultimately bigotry. And we're seeing a, a mistrust in democracy and journalism with the rise of fake news. This is like a toxic stew that's happening as part of the fourth industrial revolution that won't be fixed unless we have critical thinking around, okay, when I'm using chat GPT and I ask it to write a story about an engineer and a childcare worker, why is it that the engineer is always male and the childcare worker is always female? Why is it that it defaults to white people, to younger people, to people who live in the cities, to able-bodied people? The solution, which I'm sure we'll talk about at the end, is a combination of things, but it starts with education and critical thinking about where the bias is embedded in the everyday. Absolutely. No, that totally makes sense. So the Algorithmic Justice League says that at the very least we should be mandating inclusive product testing and the regulation of auditing systems. But from what I can tell, Twitter or Meta haven't actually done this at all. Is it a bit too late? Is, is the horse bolted on this? No, the horse hasn't bolted and we're so grateful as a society to have organisations like the Algorithmic Justice League doing the hard yards for us. This organisation started after an incredible technologist, Dr Joy Bulamwini, was creating something called an Aspire Mirror where she wanted young black and brown girls in the US to be able to put this mirror up to their faces and have 
someone they admired reflected back at them. For example, Serena Williams was the face she wanted reflected back. But when she put some off-the-shelf software into this technology to make sure when her head moved, the mirror moved in the same way, so it was a seamless product, the technology didn't recognise her face as human. She was invisible until she put on a white mask. This is the problem that is so deeply embedded. A few other examples she brought up are when algorithms decide whether you get a home loan through the banking system because traditionally women and people of colour have been rejected more often than not and home loans have been given usually to men and to white people. Uh, Because the algorithms learn from the data and the history of the past and replicate those patterns, again, people in marginalised communities will be less likely to get home loans. Uh, In fact, Ed Santo, the former Human Rights Commissioner, describes it as reawakening a zombie. But it's certainly not too late because, yes, there's been an explosion of AI in the past few years, but the European Union has got the AI Act, which they've been working on for many, many years. That's out to the member states at the moment. There's regulations in places like New York where if you have a hiring algorithm, you must audit it every year for bias or you face a fine. We're living at this time where it's kind of like between when cars were invented and seatbelts were considered. It's a dangerous time, but it's certainly not too late. Oh, that's good news. You did touch on ChatGPT and most of us have been uh, tinkering with that, I guess, for a number of months or for some people a number of years. It definitely has its limits and biases and I know in our business we've actually toyed with it a little bit. For example, in my experience, when I asked for some case studies of, you know, crisis PR, they were very American-centric and even, you know, if you ask for who's an entrepreneur, it gives you Elon Musk and, and obviously a lot of other males as well. Because women obviously are over 50% of the population and we are prolific users of technology, why is this even happening? How is this, how is this the way in which it's been programmed? It's a three-step process in layperson's terms. It starts with the data, which is basically a big rubbish pile of videos, images and words that you can find on the internet. That is what is fed in to create the artificial intelligence. Because the data is is dirty, it hasn't been cleaned, and what that means is it's not representative of the whole population. When you think about the number of people around the world who have computers or smartphones, there are fewer in developing countries. So it's very American-centric, generally more men than women, Uh, have this kind of technology, so there's more of the male experience online, even though women make up more than 50% of the population. So the bias starts with the data set. It's also historical. It's inevitably from the past. ChatGPT was trained on data sets before 2019. Now, I know that's only four years ago, but society changes and becomes more progressive as it goes on. So it's We've had a small pandemic and a few other things as well in that period of time, which, you know, was obviously huge in terms of societal content. Yeah, precisely. But a lot of the data sets are from the 80s and 90s where predominantly every doctor is male and every nurse is female. So that's where the bias starts. Then the second step is when programmers put their own unconscious bias into the algorithm, which is a mathematical equation that makes it all work. And 
one of the people I interviewed for Man Made, my book, said an, an algorithm is an opinion expressed in code. So the programmers put their own opinions into it about how the world should work. Now, programmers are predominantly young white men, a lot of them based in Silicon Valley. So that's where the second level of bias comes in. And the third level is machine learning, where without human oversight, often the machines go right down the rabbit hole of their own bigotry based on those first two steps. So that's a very simple way of explaining why women and a lot of other people are left out of this view of the future. Yeah, it makes sense when you put it that way. One example I read in an article about your book in Mamma Mia to explain some of the consequences of living in a world built on male data. It can actually be deadly, which kind of was a bit of a wake-up call for me because I was like, well, it's a bit annoying, you know, there's all these male figures in there. But when it comes down to our, you know, life and death situations, for example, a woman involved in a car crash is 71% more likely to be moderately injured and 47% more likely be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die, I kind of went, wow, this is not okay because, you know, we all drive cars. This is not going to help anyone if this is the bias that's been sort of put into systems. Is the answer as simple as having more female engineers or people around the table making these decisions or is it about a consumer demand to actually understand that, you know, we want to, if we want to buy these vehicles and we're going to buy these things, we are expecting a level of safety which is important for us and I know there's similar biases for example, in medical testing and so forth. It just seems to be we're kind of ignored when it comes to this kind of ground level research piece that even proceeds when we get to the AI bit. You make an excellent point there, Amber, because the world is designed by men for men, particularly after the first and second industrial revolutions. Things like uh, the air conditioning temperature in offices is set for a resting metabolic rate of a man, which is five degrees cooler than the resting metabolic rate of women. Which explains why I always need a jacket when I go into someone's corporate space. (laughs) Precisely. So it's too cold. And yeah, that's annoying. It's not a matter of life and death. But when you're that cold, you can't be as productive. You can't perform to the best of your ability. Taking that to a very serious level is the car situation, and I was astonished when I discovered that crash test dummies were only made in a female form in 2021. So for all those years previously, cars were designed for a male body shape. Crash test dummies, you know, when they found that there were problems with the car, that adjusted, but that would only help if a man was involved in an accident. He would be less likely to be injured or killed, but women we're still more likely to be injured or killed because we simply weren't taken into account. This is all part of the design default being male. To your question, yes, if we got more women and people in marginalised communities in the design process from the get-go, that would make a huge amount of difference. You need more diversity of thought at the table. But it's not the only solution. As consumers and members of civil society, We forget that we have power to push back. You know, order a taxi instead of an Uber. I mean, goodness me, the gig economy just treats people appallingly with under-award wages. Why would we be so beholden to these tech giants when they're ruining society in so many different ways? You can change your Siri or Alexa to a male voice in the home instead of a female voice. You can boycott some of the worst 
companies with their toxic practices. So there's got to be solutions at the start of the process as well as at the end. Artificial intelligence has been around for many years and I've got some clients in the tech space that say they've been, you know, using ChatGPT even for like a decade. It's just that most of us only heard of it in the past year or so. It's definitely not just for sci-fi buffs or tech types. Maybe we've just accepted it and didn't really realise that that power, that it's kind of, you know, immersed ourselves in there. You talk about voices like in Siri, chatbots for online services like banking or even our streaming services. The conversation is definitely shifting in how we manage AI and ensure we don't lose all that power to the tech giants and be beholden, like you say, to their powers. Are there some ways that we can see this happening already so that we don't feel like it's just doom and gloom and we're powerless in the system? Oh, definitely. And that's why organisations like the Algorithmic Justice League are so important because any societal change starts with education and begins with action. I'm really optimistic about the next generation and the generation after that because they're global thinkers, they're digital natives, and a lot of people dismiss you know, younger people. Uh, and I don't like that. I'm 56, but I think that next generation is phenomenal because they are critical thinkers. Whenever I explain this stuff to our kids who are 17 and 18, they go, oh, mum, I know that. It's all rubbish. So hopefully there's enough critical thinkers in the next generation who can push back. But the problem is that technology is ubiquitous in the same way as media is. And both of these large institutions uh, reflect and also shape society. They make our lives easier. I mean, Uber Eats is really easy to use. It's highly functional. But when we become lazy and rely on this technology and let it master us, we start to lose our critical thinking. This is where we need to push back to start thinking more critically about what we use in the everyday. Um, For anyone listening who thinks, oh, I don't work in artificial intelligence, I don't use chat GPT, I probably should explain how insidious it is. From the moment you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, you are surrounded by this thing. Every time you do online shopping and they ask you for a replacement, do you want this thing replaced? That's artificial intelligence. Every time you watch Netflix and it gives you a suggestion of a show, Netflix is not a streaming service. It's a robotic entertainment concierge. Every I time like you that. Get- <laughs> Let's reframe what, cool, what it right? is because you're right. We just don't think about it. I mean, I've started to think about it, particularly since I've read your book, but I, um, I always think, yeah, I'm on the fringe of this stuff, but I'm definitely not. No, we use it all the time. Every time you get in a smart elevator in the city, you're using artificial intelligence. But where the rubber hits the road, is when it comes to things like you apply for a job, an algorithm makes a decision. If you're over 50, it is most likely the algorithm will put your CV to the side because they consider you to be too old for the workforce based upon old historical data patterns. The good news is that there are a lot of things called uh, algorithm audits that are happening around the world. These are third-party companies that come in and say, hang on, if we change the parameters of what your algorithm is making decisions on, will it still make the same decision? If this was a young person, would it make the same decision? And obviously it wouldn't. So in a way, technology can also fix these problems, but there's got to be a pushback from society to put the pressure on the tech giants who are too busy counting their money to worry about ethics. Absolutely. 
Your book has one chapter that really spoke to me as well around coercive control and about how technology can be used in abusive relationships. That's probably something a lot of women fear now, particularly if they are in a domestic violence situation. I'm just wondering if you've thought about or you've had conversations with experts on how this can be managed to maybe even help these survivors perhaps use it in a preventative way to catch perpetrators and, and kind of turn the tables because AI can be used for good, I imagine. Yes, That's a really fascinating area. Believe it or not, 95% of organisations that deal with uh, domestic violence and sexual assault in Australia say that technology plays a part in every single instance these days. It can be something as simple as the woman having an Apple AirTag that she's bought to track her luggage when she's travelling or that she has on her handbag just in case she loses it. And the former partner uses that to stalk her and there's no protections. Another example is a lot of women who have smart home technology. Now, smart home technology can be something as simple as an app to turn lights on and off, or it can be a Siri or an Alexa. The former partner who has left the home gets control of the technology remotely. And often because men are the ones who set up the technology in the home because they're more technologically adept, they feel more comfortable with it they know the passwords, then they gaslight the woman by turning the lights on and off remotely, turning the music on at three o'clock in the morning, recording what Siri and Alexa are saying and the kind of questions that the woman is asking them. This is a really huge issue and the woman thinks, oh, I'm going mad, what's happening in my house? There was even an instance in Tasmania, a world first, where an ex-boyfriend got control of his ex-girlfriend's car because he knew the VIN number and he could control it remotely to the point where he could stop or start the moving car, which is absolutely terrifying when you think about the implications. That's terrible. It's like something from a horror movie, just describing those scenarios. Mm. It really is. But you're right. The good news is that technology can be used on the other side. There are wonderful apps right around the world. And I write about these in, in my book in, in Brazil, in Thailand, and in the Middle East where women can report sexual assault or harassment or rape anonymously online on these apps. And there's one in Canada that makes it easier for women to fill out a form and to go to the police because that's a really awful traumatic process. So technology can definitely help and empower women in these circumstances, but there are those inherent dangers around stalking and privacy that we must be aware of. Changing tack a little bit, I do ask my guests a couple of consistent questions and this one is for you. In a year's time, Tracy, what would you have liked to have achieved in in your personal life or in your work or your business and why are you looking at this goal as being so important? (laughs) Oh, wow. I would like to achieve good health. I've had You've had a rough time. Yeah. I really have, mate. I've had long COVID for a year and a half. Last year, I was almost exclusively either in bed or in a wheelchair. And the thing with long COVID or MECFS, which used to be known as chronic fatigue, is the word fatigue. People just think, oh, you're tired. And they say, oh, yes, I get tired after a big day at work. But it's a different feeling. Your body is sore every day and you literally have trouble getting from a seated to a standing position, you have trouble standing more than a couple of minutes. It's incredibly physically debilitating and painful. Having said that, 
I know a lot of young people who've got it. Friends of mine have got teenagers with long COVID. These poor, dear young girls, and predominantly affects girls and women, and medical misogyny means that we really don't know the cause of it. We know it's post-viral and sometimes post-bacterial, sometimes post-trauma, very occasionally, but with long COVID, certainly post-viral after the pandemic. And we don't have any good treatments yet. So there are women and girls suffering all around the world being gaslit by doctors saying, oh, you're probably just a bit depressed. <laughs> right. Years that's time, that's no I good. And I really do hope that your health gets better and better. And we did have a quick chat before we press record just to say that you are on the men, but it's definitely been a long process. Yes, I'm 90% better, mainly through... Resting and pacing, which is what the wonderful chronic chronic fatigue warriors have taught us. I'm on a lot of different medications. It's off-label, it's low dose, it's usually used for other things, but that combination of medication keeps me upright. So I'm grateful for that. Excellent. And a final takeaway message for everyone listening on the politics of AI bias. Oh, my final message is to look around your house and your workplace and what your kids are using if you have kids or young people in your life, and think about where AI is embedded and critically analyse the bias. For example, there's a lot of image generators these days where you put in a couple of words and it comes up with a unique image scraped from billions of images on the internet. Yes, there's a copyright issue with that, but my particular interest in that is bias because inevitably if it's a female image, it will be highly sexualised It'll probably be white. It'll have incredibly clear skin and glossy, glamorous hair. So it's almost like the modern version of airbrushing and I was going to say, yeah, just all the filters that, you know, those filters you can put on your socials so that you look completely different basically. Precisely. And these, I saw an ad for Maybelline the other night that actually used a holographic image, an AI bot instead of a human actor. And I thought, gosh, this is the next stage that we're going to have to keep an eye out for. As women, we're going to have to be even more perfect than the airbrush models. We're going to have to be robotic perfect so the pharmaceutical companies can make their billions. This is the next step. So my key message is to have a look around you at where AI is embedded in your life and then do what's called machine teaching because we can go beyond machine learning by telling ChatGPT that it is biased and that you want it to do better because this is how we can fix the biased bots. Yeah, great advice, a big topic. I thank you for tackling this today on the politics of everything. And, of course, if you do want to connect with Tracy online or find out more about her book, there are some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.